This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton-Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer or competitor. In this episode, Karon speaks with Rod Sims, Chairman of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, about the inquiry into digital platforms. What's fundamental is understanding what this business is. I mean, it's a very clever business model. You really have to applaud the platforms, particularly Facebook and Google. So they're offering a service for free, and their objective in doing that is to get access to your data so they can sell it to advertisers. A very clear business model, perhaps not that clear to consumers, but when you sit and look at the business model, it's absolutely clear. Here's Karon Beaton-Wells. Traditional media is being disrupted. Printing presses have closed down, journos are losing their jobs, and concerns about filter bubbles and fake news abound. What is killing Australian media at the moment is the impact of Facebook and Google and the over $4 billion a year they hoover up in advertising revenue, damaging the content providers, whereas Google and Facebook can piggyback, cannibalise the content of media outlets. So there will be change in Australian media. That's the outspoken former Australian politician Nick Xenophon calling for Australia's competition watchdog to scrutinise digital platforms. Like him, many see these platforms as a threat to traditional media and advertising. Enter the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, briefed to examine the implications for media organisations, advertisers and, of course, us as news consumers. Rod Sims has been at the helm of the ACCC since 2011 and has extensive public sector and business experience behind him. Industry upheaval and public controversy are just part of his daily diet. Rod describes himself as a committed capitalist. So, I wonder whether that commitment is wavering in the face of the immense power of a small number of large tech companies who are transforming our economy and society. Rod, what is it that underpins your commitment to capitalism? Consideration of the alternatives, I think, Karan, it's a bit the same as people who embrace democracy. It's got a range of problems, but it's a lot better than the alternatives. So I guess, firstly, just looking around us and seeing the prosperity in general that we have, albeit unequal, but of course, across the world, that inequality is falling, even though within some countries, inequality may be growing. But I think just being involved or or seeing organisations that exist perhaps with government ownership, perhaps with a monopoly, where they're just not responsive to consumers and then seeing perhaps that business being sold and see a transformation in how they do respond to consumers. Now, of course, that comes with risks in terms of the fact that the new owner's key interest is to maximise profit. And so that's why the Competition and Consumer Act is fundamental to make sure they're playing within certain rules. But really, provided they stay within the Act, both the spirit as well as the black letter law, then they need to win by satisfying consumers. And that ultimately benefits us all. And coming to the inquiry then, the ACCC has traditionally seen its role principally as an enforcement agency, 
But in recent years, particularly under your stewardship, it's been active in conducting market studies or inquiries such as this. Why do you see this kind of R&D function as an important element of your work, perhaps particularly in an age of transformative economic and social change? A couple of points, Karan. Firstly, I think it's crucial that competition regulators are proactive rather than just reactive. I mean, my biggest job at the ACCC is to look after the reputation of the organisation. That's my fundamental objective, and I embrace that because I think the organisation is so fundamentally important to the success of our market economy. And if we're just reactive, if we're not bothering or concerned with behaviour outside of things that we can actually see where there might be a breach of the Act, then there's a whole lot of things that could be going on, which perhaps when you dig, you find a breach, or you just may find competition or consumer behaviour that while not breaching the Act, does constitute a market failure sufficiently large for something to be done. And if we're not calling that out, frankly, I can't see who else is. So that's one reason. The second one is that, particularly when it comes to digital markets, platform markets, but really it's a general point, but it particularly provides here that you really want to stay ahead of the game. You really want a deep understanding of things that are going to affect the economy, are going to affect us all, and I think we need to be ahead of the game rather than chasing events after they've occurred. You're right, of course, to observe the fast-moving nature of the markets occupied by digital platforms and their complexity. But some see the current inquiry as essentially an inquiry into two companies, Google and Facebook. Just what is the scope of the inquiry, Rod? It's an inquiry looking at the effect of platforms on advertisers, on the media and Of course, when people think of platforms, they think of the two biggest ones, Google and Facebook, but it certainly includes other platforms, Twitter, a whole range of others. So it certainly is wider, Karan. There's no doubt it's a wider inquiry, but there's also no doubt that most of the complaints and concerns emanate from alleged behaviour by Facebook and Google. And I guess you'd have to say they are probably the ones with the most dominant position. So if there's issues, they're more likely going to rise with them. So look, it's wider, but it's not surprising that there's a fair bit of focus on Facebook and Google. And thinking about the economic principles that the ACCC will employ in analysing these markets, how important is it to understand the way in which the platform business model works? Again, a couple of points. I might just step back a bit and say, well, we're looking at three questions that are fundamental and ones that we are well-placed to address. One is, is there market power? How is it being used? Is it being abused? The fundamental competition question. Secondly, we're looking at this from a consumer point of view. Are consumers misled? Are the terms of the contract appropriate? Are they fair? Thirdly, is there a level playing field? This is always a question you get when you have disruption. Is the disruptor playing by different rules from those against which it is disrupting? So the frameworks we have as a competition agency 
and a consumer agency and I might add an infrastructure regulator are pretty fundamental to what we're doing here. And I think if you try and address these questions without a sound framework, you'll be all over the place and won't know where to go and get lost and come out in the wrong place. We've got a very strong framework. It's our competition framework, our consumer framework, our level playing field framework. And at the end of all that, we've of course got our cost benefit framework, but you've got to go through the other three first. So in terms of some of the competition issues, what's fundamental is understanding what this business is. I mean, it's a very clever business model. You really have to applaud the platforms, particularly Facebook and Google. So they're offering a service for free and their objective in doing that is to get access to your data so they can sell it to advertisers. A very clear business model, perhaps not that clear to consumers, but when you sit and look at the business model, it's absolutely clear. It's therefore, of course, a classic platform, a classic two-sided markets. But it's not new. I mean, we have payment card networks of platforms, of course, and they have to appeal to both consumers to use the card, merchants to accept the card. This isn't new territory. I guess the extent to which people think they're getting a free service, the extent to which they're perhaps not fully aware of how they're paying for that service through the access to their data, that's an added twist. But I don't think it's it's not necessarily new ground. And of course, the other thing to understand is this business model needs to grow. It needs to grow to maintain the network effect and it needs to grow just by looking at their share price. So I would, and I haven't done the calculations recently, but I'd be very confident in saying that Google and Facebook share price would halve or more if the market thought their profits were going to stay flat even in real terms. So they have to keep growing to justify that share price. They've really got a growth imperative on them. The good news out of that is some of the platforms may more start competing against each other, but it means they've got to keep finding new ways to monetize what they're getting off the users, which is data. So it really is a fascinating exercise. And that essentially means continuing to drive innovation through their businesses, doesn't it? Which is essentially good for consumers. Oh, absolutely. Uh, That innovation is good for consumers. It may also mean they bump into each other, various platforms bumping into each other. That means you might get a bit of competition. And look, there's no doubt the benefits the platforms have bought are enormous. I mean, I use Google all the time from someone asked me some question and I think I should know that I just quietly google it and then I'm an expert and again the other point of course is the diversity of views we now all have access to there was a time when the dominant media issue was the the dominance of Murdoch and Packer in Australian media you don't hear about that anymore Mm. um, Mm. because you've got of course News Limited Fairfax course you always have had but now you've got an increasingly sophisticated ABC but if you think about Channel 9 has got a very good website that you can get news from the Fairfax news website is excellent but I think one of the top websites is the Daily Mail believe it or not and then you've got all the other websites where I get a daily feed from the Financial Times and my wife 
regularly every day reads the New York Times as well as the Guardian. So that's just fantastic diversity. So yes, enormous pluses and there's no way we will lose sight of those enormous pluses. Of course, that's a contested question because there are some who suggest that indeed it's the very plurality of our news that's under threat here by virtue of the platforms. And linked to that is a concern about the democratic function that news performs in our society. And I want to come back to some of those broader public interest questions, but if we could just continue to focus for a moment on the three sides of these markets that we're concerned with, consumers, publishers or content creators and advertisers. Starting with consumers, you've mentioned the tremendous benefits that digitization and platforms have rendered for us as consumers and indeed as citizens. But of course, the services that many of these platforms offer us are for free, and traditionally competition analysis is concerned with higher prices. So when the ACCC is thinking about the impact of platforms on news consumers and their welfare, what types of variables, what types of dimensions of welfare will you be thinking about? Oh, all of them, Karan. We as an agency aren't hung up on price and we're not hung up on measurement. We take a holistic approach. So here we'll be looking at price, we're looking at quality, we'll be looking at choice, we'll be looking at diversity, we'll be looking mm-hmm. at service. So we're really going to be asking that classic question that was asked many years ago by Maureen Brunt, you know, what's really going on here? So in most of these things, you've got to take a bottom up and top down. So you've got to use all mm-hmm. your competition and consumer tools and frameworks to work your way up and through the problem but then you've got to sit and take a holistic view and and marry the two together Mm. but but of course the price-centric approach does very much lend itself to measurement whereas with quality that quality is an inherently subjective idea isn't it does it trouble you that it may be difficult to objectively measure or assess whether or not quality is being reduced or enhanced by these developments? Uh, I think it excites me more than anything else, Karan. It, it's uh, All problems are good fun. If you don't enjoy what you're doing, you shouldn't be in the business, I think. So look, there's no question that's a challenge. But I go back to my bottom up and top down. I mean, if you run into a roadblock somewhere, gosh, I can't go anywhere because I can't measure quality, then how else can you come at it? And you mentioned earlier, and I know you're going to come back to it, but I'll come back to it now, just this issue of, on the one hand, you've got massive more diversity if you want it. On the other hand, there is that argument that some people are locked into getting onto news that suits their well-formed opinion, so they're just getting their their views... That's right, they're just getting their views reinforced. Now, there are surveys that have been done about that, which you can look at, And so there is some data about what people are watching and to some extent we can use our information gathering powers to get some of that data off the major platforms. So look, that's definitely an issue. I mean, I'm somebody who reads three newspapers a day that cover the spectrum of the left of the spectrum and the right. And I listen Mm -hmm. to radio from the left of the spectrum and right. So I actively seek out diverse views so I'm conscious that that's an important issue but I think you can measure it a bit and again I think it's not a matter of making something an absolute hurdle and if you can't jump through it you're gone 
you can go around mm. it and just see what's ultimately that problem you're trying to solve and is there another way of factoring something in that's really important? Is there another approach you can take? So I don't know how we're going to get there, Karan, on those issues. If you ask me now how we're going to do it, I don't know, but we'll do it. I don't know how, but we'll do Either it. Way. What about privacy and data protection? Are those elements of quality such that a competition analysis would take into account, say, reduced privacy protections in considering whether a market is functioning competitively? Oh, absolutely, Karan. And let me just, if I could, slightly correct. I know we're always styled as the competition regulator, but we are very much the consumer regulator as well. We're equal. And the essence of consumer law is are consumers misled? So certainly we'll be looking at, do consumers know what they're signing on for? That is, do they know what amount of their data is being collected? Do they know what's being done with it? What have they actually agreed to? If they have agreed to something, is it unilaterally changed without their agreement? So the consumer lens is going to be as equally important as the competition lens. I would not put one ahead of the other. They're equally important. And within that, privacy is an issue both from our consumer framework, but also ultimately, it's also relevant to the level playing field. Because if one competitor is doing things on privacy that's problematic and another competitor isn't, that's relevant. And we'll be working very closely with Australia's privacy commissioner. Mm. Now, clearly, the competition and consumer protections aspects are very much interconnected. And as you say, it's a great strength of your agency that you have both of those functions. Let's talk a bit about the implications for the media content creators. Now, you've had 57 submissions to date, and no doubt you will get more. But what's fascinating from amongst those submissions from the media organisations is quite a considerable divergence in their positions. Some argue that the platforms provide them with new opportunities to connect and engage with wider audiences, new ways to monetize through much more targeted advertising. And so their essential position is that platforms are valuable partners or collaborators in a new operating environment. And then on the other hand, you have those who have launched what one commentator described as a blistering attack on the platforms. And the argument here is that the platforms are essentially unavoidable and undesirable trading partners that are intermediating between publishers and readers and curtailing the capacity to build subscription revenue. So I'm sure this is not a new situation for you, Rod, where you have submitters who are taking really extremely different positions on a question. How does an agency such as yours go about reconciling those differences? Well, first of all, we were a bit surprised at the diversity in some areas. But ultimately, Caron, all submissions we receive on all issues are basically self-serving. That is always the case, no matter what we're getting and from whom we're getting. I mean, occasionally, sorry, let me, I've gone too far there. There are certainly times when we've had inquiries and we've had thoughtful pieces from independent parties. But where you've got parties that are involved in the game, it's impossible for them, and I'd do it myself if I were in their position, it's impossible for them to be objective. So they are 
putting forward a submission that suits what they're trying to achieve. Now, you can imagine smaller media organizations trying to grow might think this is terrific. You can enter a market you couldn't before. Dominant news organizations would see this as a threat and take a different approach. Our role is to take on board all submissions and test them. And this is what we do in our mergers, our enforcement cases, our adjudication decisions. This is just standard fare. And when I say they're self-serving, they absolutely are, but that's not to say we don't get a lot out of them because often they know that to present their case as best they can and to make it as influential, they've got to work within frameworks we're familiar with and we find that valuable. They might give us insights into how do you define the market, how do you define the barriers to entry, just things you wouldn't have thought about before. So the submissions are immensely valuable, but we're not trying to reconcile We never try and reconcile submissions because we just know with divergent interests, you're going to get divergent submissions. So we just soak them up, test them, and get what we can out of them. And they are proving enormously beneficial. And what are some of the other ways in which the agency is consulting in this inquiry? Because it appears to be not just relying on submissions, but there are other channels through which you are receiving input. Yes, so we're meeting with various parties on a very, I guess, a programmed basis. That is, we're trying to make sure we get out and meet all the main players and have a discussion. I've had discussions with what could be called the main players, you know, the major platform companies, the major publishers. But the team is obviously talking to just a massive number of people. I get reports every week on the the number of people they're talking to. So that's part of it. We're holding forums. We had a consumer and an advertiser forum this week. And thank you for your participation in uh, the consumer forum. Uh, It was fascinating. And we'll have forums with journalists and forums with the platforms themselves. And they're going to be interesting. I'll certainly, I, I couldn't get to the forums this week, but I'll certainly get to and chair the coming forums. So we're using everything we can to test things as we feel we need to. So we're certainly sending out information gathering requests to not just the platforms, but other media companies to get information from them in a standard, methodical, investigatory way. So, and of course, we're doing research. And the good news is with platforms, there's a lot of people who've researched them. You know, I've already, I mean, I've read a couple of books before this thing started. Someone kindly sent them to me for holiday reading, which is very nice of them. And <laughs> very I've read, generous. Exactly. Um, so there's a lot out there that we're getting hold of. And so just understanding, you know, how the businesses work is really important. Yeah. I should add the average age of the team is probably about half my age. So we really have got a a team that does thoroughly know what they're talking about, even if uh, I may not be the most person on top of uh, some of these developments. They're very much consumers themselves. They are. But you might have children who might be in that category, Rod. I'm certainly learning from my children that no platform has um, an infinite life. My children have never been on and never think of going on Facebook because, of course, they're all on Snapchat. Indeed. So that's an interesting uh, household research insight. 
I want to just ask you briefly about the broader public interest, which we touched on earlier. So you'd be aware, of course, that we recently had a parliamentary committee do a report on the future of public interest journalism. And it noted or highlighted that this is journalism that serves a really fundamental public interest in our society. It might expose corruption, it might improve our environment, it might even save lives. But it's at the same time expensive, it takes time, and it can upset powerful interests. You're a competition and consumer watchdog. You've explained the importance of both those functions. But can you go further and think about these broader impacts of digitalization and platforms on public interest journalism? Is an agency like yours really set up to and equipped to do that kind of inquiry? Oh, look, absolutely. Uh, let me make a couple of points. So the the issue we're faced with, of course, is not new. 40 years ago, 50 years ago, take whatever period you want. I mean, the newspapers were funded by the advertising. So you weren't directly paying for the news. You were getting the news at a subsidised price because the advertisers were providing the bulk of the revenue to those producing the newspaper. So that issue is not new. The way we're approaching this, though, and I might just repeat a bit before I answer your question directly. So we're looking through our competition lens and all the frameworks we have there. We're looking through our consumer lens and all the frameworks there. We're looking thirdly through, is there a level playing field? So we're trying to work out through those frameworks, are there problems that either could be a breach of the act or could be something that is a market failure so significant that it requires a policy response? And once we've done those three things, because you may find once you've done those three things, you come up with answers that could address the fourth problem anyway. But to the extent you don't, you then have to ask, well, if, for example, you don't find much under the first three headings and therefore this is disruption that doesn't have much market failure attached to it if you get to that point then you've still got the issue of what does this disruption do to the choice and quality of news and that's just in our terms classic cost benefit analysis which we do all the time we consider two or three authorization applications a week which are straight cost benefit analysis so I think we can certainly do that. Indeed, I think we're ideally suited to do that because it, again, needs investigation. You don't want emotion coming into this. You don't want assumptions that are untested. You need investigation. You need data analysis. You need broader analysis. So absolutely, we will bring those broader public interest considerations in. Again, how we'll do it is tricky, but we will do it. It's essentially inquiry into whether the state of democracy is under threat, if at least that's what some people are arguing, and a heavy responsibility for, through that lens for the ACCC. But you really make it clear in the issue paper that you're going to take a long-term view of this, and you're conscious that the media has been impacted by technological change for many decades now, and so a historical perspective on that change is valuable, but you also want to look forward, and there's no question that the sheer pace and transformative nature of technologically driven change is bewildering. How can you 
possibly predict the future then in that context? Aren't there inherent dangers or risks in, in crystal ball gazing of that kind? Yes, there are. Of course, as you know very well, we do that all the time in all our merger analysis. Just about every merger is a bit of crystal ball gazing and that often these days does involve some element of the digital economy. So we are used to doing this. I take your point and the point about your children not being on Facebook, being on Snapchat. I mean, that, you know, to what extent is any market power we might attribute to the platforms transitory? I mean, that is a fundamental question. I guess, though, well, let me put it this way, Karan. If I go and break down the, what I'm calling the four parts of our inquiry, it's absolutely fundamental to the competition analysis. You just can't get away from it. The consumer analysis, it's important, but not overwhelming, because fundamentally, to put it bluntly, if consumers are getting misled, well, then they're getting misled. The level playing field, yes, it's important there. The public interest issues we talked upon, the, you know, the fourth issue that I would call, you, know, you could form the view that, look, Google and Facebook and, well, let's just focus on them, have a dominant position, but there's a reasonable prospect that will be under threat and so their dominance can't be assumed into the future. You could still take the view that even their lack of dominance, they'll be replaced by someone else or by some collective of others and that will still have that same problem for journalism that you just outlined. So it is a very important question, but it's not as big as it seems. Mm. And also it's not a question we haven't, you know, we don't wrestle with absolutely every day every merger is what happens if this merger does and does not go ahead and that is hotly contested particularly by the merger parties who will paint a picture of a future where the merger is just such a wonderful thing for everybody because of the way the market's going to evolve and we have to test that and i guess look at where the trends are that can be actually more insightful than people realise. Thinking about the temporal context for these questions as you've outlined them does make some concerned about regulatory responses and the possibility of those responses having chilling effects that might actually be counterproductive or to the detriment of consumers. So talk us through what are the possible categories of outcome of this inquiry in terms of ACCC recommendations? I think three, as with all our inquiries, with all our market studies, there's three categories of outcomes. One is we might find a breach of the Act, either the Competition Act or the Consumer Act. Working with the Privacy Commissioner, they might find a breach of the Privacy Act. So there could be breaches of the law. Secondly, helping consumers understand what it is they're signing up for. And of course, the great silver lining out of the Cambridge Analytica matter is that now consumers do understand a lot more than they understood before. It brought very much to light just how much data there is, but I think we can help inform consumers and that can only be a good thing. And thirdly, we could make recommendations to government for changes to our Act, well not so much our Act, Uh, I think our Act is actually with the Harper changes in, in good shape, it doesn't need any other tool but 
we could recommend other changes to government in all sorts of areas. So I don't want to suggest what they might be, but nothing's off limits. Yeah, interesting. Rod, clearly this is a complex and resource-intensive endeavour for the ACCC, and you do have quite a formidable deadline for an initial report, at least by December. Tell us briefly about what kinds of resources the ACCC has for this, because at the same time it's business as usual and you have a vast portfolio of advocacy, enforcement and other activities. So how are you resourced to conduct this type of inquiry? The government gave us money and it gave us the ability to grow our employment resources. So we have 14 people working on this full-time. More than half probably have come from within the organisation. There are resources that were doing other things, so I've had to backfill those. But what has been very pleasing from all the inquiries is just the depth of talent that we've unlocked, that people who had to step up and backfill somebody are performing perhaps better than they, even they thought themselves. So that's been very pleasing. So the effect on business as usual has been very small. So we've got 14 staff. I mean, you could employ 1,400 if you wanted to, but I think 14 is the right number, give or take one or two, but I'm very comfortable with the level of resources. We've got someone seconded in from the Department of Communications who just brings excellent knowledge. We've got extremely good economists working on this. We've got extremely good lawyers working on this. And the core ACCC people who are leading or involved in this exercise are really high calibre people. So it's a very high quality team. But look, the pressure will be on for that December report. There's no doubt about that. Well, I, for one, can't wait to see the outcome of the ACCC inquiry. The findings and recommendations will undoubtedly generate further debate on things we all depend on and may even take for granted. There are links to the inquiry website in the show notes, where you'll also find the ACCC's issues paper and submissions. Next time on Competition Law, we'll get a global perspective on competition in a digital economy from the head of the OECD's competition division, Antonio Gomez. Until then, you can find our blogs, resources and links at competitionlore.com. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favourite digital platform and please leave us a review. Competition Law was produced by written and recorded.com. I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. See you soon. Music